Hi, I'm Mark Brody, co-host of the show, one of KJZZ's original productions. It's a program with news and features from across Phoenix and the state. You can find much more at theshow.kjzz.org. Here's today's episode. Good morning. It's the show here on KJZZ 91.5 in Phoenix. I'm Mark Brody. Coming up, why people seem to be so drawn to violent video games and how the Frankenstein story continues to be reimagined. But first, it is time for the Friday newscap and some voices from the news this week. But I have a very clear message for anyone using the southern border for staged political events. Don't come to Arizona. Take your political theater to Texas. Do not bring it to my state. We have acted like crabs in a bucket, letting the perfect be the enemy of the good, tearing down real attempts at election reform. We've done it over and over again, and we've done it to ourselves. But that ends today. I feel it's like our duty to actually try to remove this guy because I think he is a danger and I think what he's doing is causing irreparable harm and and thus our duty is to go forward. Knowing that teachers get a $4,000 raise, I I think that's a a no-brainer to most voters. Uh, So I'm not too worried about what happens there. You can't take it for granted. We'll have a plan. Um, I do become much more worried about it when, when if we were to adopt your amendment. Especially with an election cycle coming up, major events coming up, and to keep continuity with the agency and put the employees' minds at ease, as well as the community's minds at ease. And joining me to talk about the future of a border, the failure of a border security bill to even make it to debate in the U.S. Senate, a compromise on election issues in the state legislature and more are Paul Bentz of High Ground. Good morning, Paul. Good morning. And Mike Hayner of Lumen Strategies making his news camp debut. Hey, Mike. Good morning. How are you? Doing all right. So, guys, let's start in D.C., where we heard uh, just a moment ago from uh, Senator Kirsten Cinema, clearly not thrilled with the outcome of uh, of the border security bill that she helped negotiate. Paul, is this a case of Republicans not being able to take yes for an answer? Absolutely. I mean, I think one of the things that Bob Rob pointed out is that a year ago, the Republicans pushed a very harsh strict border enforcement bill saying things were broken, and now they're pushing back against the bipartisan proposal, claiming suddenly that things are fine if the president just used what he had in place uh, in order to enforce the law. They're really speaking out of both sides of their mouth. But this is about scoring political points. They know immigration and the border is a big deal for Republicans going into this presidential election, and they want to hold on to that as a topic to talk about. I mean, Mike, safe to say that this was basically due to President Trump? Is that giving him too much credit here? Oh, no, not at all. I think it's all due to President Trump and and his uh, hold on the Republican Party at this point is unquestioned. And so if he says vote for it, they're voting for it. If he says they're vote against it, they will vote against it. And that's what they did. Does this give Democrats an opportunity to use immigration for their side as an election issue to say, hey, look, you know, Republicans were saying this is a problem, this is a problem, it's a crisis, it's a crisis. We offered a solution. And then suddenly, as Senator Sinema said in her in her floor speech, suddenly it's not a crisis anymore. Yeah. And as Paul said, this is um, kind of political theater, right? So so from a campaign standpoint, it's a problem. But to solve it, we don't want to do that. So we want to keep it as a campaign problem. So, again, I think Democrats could use this as an opportunity to say, we have a fix. We're going to end catch and release. We're going to we're, we're going to close the border if migration surges. 
th- this is uh, an opportunity for Democrats to to take the issue and actually do something positive with it. Paul, do you think Republicans have left themselves vulnerable on on this issue in some way? I do, because now Democrats can say, look, this is the toughest amount of border security or border reform that we've seen probably in about 40 years. We offered real solutions. We made compromises. You said this is a problem. We put these uh, proposals in place and you're rejecting them. Uh, It'll be interesting to see if they can thread that needle, if that narrative, because they're really trying to tack this, you know, when you talk about the what they tried to do with the Secretary of Defense or the Secretary of Homeland Security and other items. um, They really are trying to make this a crisis. But then when offered a solution, they didn't take it. It'll be interesting to see if Democrats can run with that and say, look, we offered a solution and they won't take it. Um, I, I don't know if that'll stick, but that's where they're going to go. We heard uh, in in the top here, uh, State Representative Alexander Colladin talking about uh, letting the perfect be the enemy of the good as it relates to an election uh, calendar fix, which we'll talk about in, in a couple of minutes. Paul, I wonder, like, is this a situation, this bill, where that was also the case, where at least for some senators, like, it it just wasn't enough. And even though they got some of what they wanted, they couldn't say yes because they didn't get enough of what they wanted? Well, I think they're going to say that. I'm not sure that's really what it is. I think really what it is is that they don't want to lose this issue and um, potentially tying it with Ukraine and some of the other things to also make it a little bit less palatable for them. But it was real reform. It was real solutions there. I think you saw Senator Sinema, why she's so frustrated is because I think this was a big issue for her. I think she is one of the very unique people that could bring people together to solve this problem. And I think she came with a, a solution that really was bipartisan in nature and it's roundly rejected, doesn't even get to be debated um, because of the politics involved. All right. So, Mike, let's talk about the politics involved. And, of course, we're still waiting on Senator Cinema to announce whether or not she's going to seek reelection. Does the failure of this bill to not only become law but to even make it to debate, does that impact her decision in any way, do you think? I don't think it impacts her decision. Uh, Senator Cinema, I, I believe, is going to do what's in the best interest of Arizona and She's going to make her decision based off of what she wants to do moving forward. But I don't think that this bill in particular is going to going to change her decision making process. Do you think she runs? At the end of the day, I think she does. Paul, what do you think? I'm not sure if she runs. I think if this had passed or if we had the debate about it, this is a big feather in her cap and one of the big things that she could push for and really deliver once again like she's done on some of the Biden agenda and other things that she's been the linchpin on the CHIPS Act and a wide variety of other solutions that she can take credit for and being a big part of. Had she been able to uh, negotiate the solution, I think this would have been a huge win for her in kicking off her campaign. Um, That being said, I don't think it's essential for her run, but I think it would have been a really nice boost to the start of a run. All right. So, Paul, you'd mentioned uh, Alejandro Mayorkas, the direct, the secretary of the Department of Homeland Security. The House uh, voted to try to uh, impeach him this week. That vote failed. Uh, We heard from Andy Biggs saying, you know, we got to keep doing it. You know, Biggs is saying this guy's a danger. He's not doing his job. What do you make of the fact that the House couldn't that they couldn't muster the votes and that they still put it up for a vote? Uh, maybe they knew it was going to fail. Maybe they didn't, but they still put it up for a vote. 
I mean, I think it goes into what we saw, the, the ongoing efforts of the Republican Party to purify itself from anybody that they don't necessarily agree with or people who they don't deem as MAGA enough. I also uh, heard that Congressman Biggs also recently endorsed the primary opponent of one of his fellow congressmen. And I think it's just this level here. We saw it at the Republican Party pre meeting, the state meeting where they uh, ate their own. I, I think it's this ongoing effort to uh, call down the list to just the people who they think are the most loyal and um, this really, you know, gave them an opportunity to do that once again. I, I think, again, it's political theater here, just trying to point to the border problem. It's funny that they're doing this at the same time while they're not even allowing debate on a border bill. There does not appear to be any desire to actually legislate or find compromise. It's just opportunities to grandstand. Well, and Mike, it's pretty clear that the Senate was not going to vote to remove him. So I'm curious what you make of the fact that it was put up for a vote and that the Republicans couldn't muster the votes on this one. Well, it shows a, a lack of leadership on the on the part of the speaker. Um, you don't you don't bring something to the floor that doesn't have the votes. That's just kind of rule number one of of legislating. And so, again, as Paul said, it's political theater. They want to impeach Mayorkas, but they don't want to pass a border bill that would help fix the problem. So you, you're not doing your job, but we're not doing our job by actually passing something that gives you the tools that that we think you need to actually do this. Well, and, and we keep seeing polls that suggest that immigration, especially among Republican voters, is the top or one of the top couple of issues. Do these two incidents from this week, do, do, how do those play into how voters perceive the immigration issues between now and, you know, and, and let's say October, November? I'm not sure that anything changes the perception of immigration over the next six months or so. Again, the the reality is they're going to campaign on as if they didn't try to stop that from happening. It's going to be it's a problem. It's a problem. And and they can't fix it. That's what you know, that's what the messaging is going to be. Do you guys both expect to see immigration as a big campaign issue in terms of we heard Senator Sinema say, if you want to do your photo ops at the border, don't do it in Arizona. There's still going to be photo ops in Arizona, right? Lots yeah. of cowboy hats, lots of cowboy <laughs> boots, a lot of people touring the border. I mean, we're going to see a lot of people come and tour the border and talk a lot about it. I think when the president, former president, pardon me, comes to town, it will be what he wants to talk about. Trump will want to – it'll be part of the Blame Biden tour. And, you know, the former president will have the advantage now of having an opponent. He does best when he gets to attack other people. And now not only does he have a Democratic president, but in the state he's got a Democratic governor. And so I think he'll come with – both guns blazing, just to criticize and blame everybody that's not himself. Do we see former President Trump in a cowboy hat, do you think, Paul? I don't think the hair will handle that, but I do think some of the other folks will definitely be donning a cowboy hat. Definitely that the hair rejects a hat. Jeez, okay. <laughs> oh, okay. So, guys, let's talk about a, a bill that actually was able to be voted on in Arizona uh, this week, a compromise bill that won almost unanimous support. This was uh, dealing with uh, issues related to the election calendar. Uh, county election officials have been sort of sounding the alarm on this for a few months now. And with the deadline of today, the governor says she's going to, to sign this bill into law. Mike, we heard earlier in the week that maybe there wasn't going to be a compromise. The sides seemed pretty far apart. How did this come together seemingly overnight? Well, like a lot of things legislatively, you know, going back to the to the immigration package, what you have to do in these situations when you need a, a, a supermajority, because, again, they needed 20 votes in the Senate and 40 in the right. House, you have to continue to talk and communicate. And that's what the governor's office did. That's what uh, uh, the legislative side did. Both Republican and Democrat 
Democratic legislators coming together with the governor's office and not giving up. Um, there are always challenges. There are always going to be road, you know, kind of bumps in the road along the way. But ultimately, it's it's continuing to, to talk and find a way to to come to a solution. And that's what they did. Paul, it's unusual, it seems to me, to have a bill of this magnitude that has the potential to be contentious like election-related issues can be, that you have legislative Republicans, you have the governor, you have uh, advocacy groups, left-leaning advocacy groups, you have the chairman of the county board of supervisors, a Republican, all saying this is great, this is a win. Well, a credit to the governor because uh, she did say earlier in the week that it was going to be dead on arrival with some of these proposals. They certainly made some compromises here. Moving the election date up a week is going to be interesting because it will have ripple effects that I don't think people are thinking about right now. Me, myself, I'm already having to start to mentally prepare that everything's going to be moved up a week. Yeah. Um, so from just a strategy planning perspective. On the other thing, uh, the bright side is they did codify a lot to do with checking early ballots. And so I hope that means – that this effort among some Republicans to try to ban early voting, get rid of it completely, which is incredibly – early voting is incredibly popular and used by more than 80 percent of the electorate. Hopefully we're past that now. If they, if they want to codify actually how you're supposed to review them, maybe that means that they do think they're good and they do want them in this general election. So, Mike, we talked before the break about the fact that the primary election will be moved up by about a week. What kind of impact does that have on candidates and their campaigns? It shouldn't have a big impact. A week isn't that long in the big scheme of things. Obviously, um, as a sitting legislator, you're going to want to get out of session and and be able to campaign, um, which was was interesting that they were talking about a May primary for a while. Yeah. And, and again, that would that would create, I think, a lot more challenges. But this moving it just one week, I don't think is going to create that many new problems for candidates or or uh, sitting elected officials who are running in a primary. Paul, would you agree with that? And I mean, you work on on campaigns sometimes. So like, is this is this something that folks are like, are are you guys looking at your calendars and trying to adjust strategies that you have that you had planned for X week that now has to be a little earlier? Sure. I mean, when it comes to compliance, when it comes to uh, I'm not sure if it will impact when they have to file their campaign finance reports, um, the signature gap, you know, the signature deadlines. Uh, there's some statutory about when, you know, they're based on X number of days. Um, before the election. So it'll be interesting to see how some of that cascades down. In the grand scheme of things, I don't think it's a big deal. It was a slightly bigger deal when we moved the primary. It used to be, you know, the first week of September. Right. And then it was sort of mid-August. Then it was early August. And now we're talking about late July. Um, in the long run, it would be interesting, and I think not in this discussion where it was huge pressure, to have a discussion of where the best time to have the primary is. I don't think necessarily in May is a bad idea. Um, but, you know, we wouldn't have been able to do it this year. But uh, giving more space for the general election candidates to be able to discuss and talk, you know, the, instead of the sprint we have now. Right now, you win your primary and then you have to sprint to the general election because early voting is only a couple weeks, you know, away. Um, it would be interesting to have that happen. I don't think it will be a big impact this year. But it okay. is – people need to bear in mind that it is not where they, the election – Till this point has not posted where, where it's going to be. Right. So, Mike, we heard uh, a lot of especially Republicans talking about like the good election integrity uh, measures that are in this bill, things like signature verification and and some other things. Does this mean that we're not going to be hearing about irregularities and rigged elections and stolen elections, at least in Arizona in 2024? That's a hopeful proposition. <laughs> <laughs> but I, but I doubt it. Again, um, with with the the way that elections have 
happened over the last couple of years, um, I think that that narrative will continue depending on who wins or who loses. Is that a harder argument for Republicans, especially Republicans, to make since they were talking this week about all these great things that they got in this bill that will make elections more secure? I think it'll be more difficult, especially with a narrow presidential election. You got they got everything that they wanted for with it comes to verification for a recount in what they're anticipating to be a very close presidential election. There's no excuse at this point. They got what they wanted for that. They're going to meet the deadline that they needed to meet to make sure that everything could be done prior to the December what 18th deadline. So now they've got everything that they have. So there, there's no excuse at this point. If they, they want to challenge it or if they think it's really close, um, they allegedly got the tools that they wanted to accomplish that. All right. So, Mike, this week, another thing at the state capitol that is moving along is a plan uh, to extend prop. Position 123. This was the voter-approved measure from a few years back that uh, took a little more money out of the state land trust to give to uh, education. There are two competing plans. We've talked about this. The governor has a plan that takes more money out and divides it among different more groups. Uh, Legislative Republicans have a plan that uh, takes a little less than the governor wants and just gives raises to teachers. Both would require voter approval. The legislative Republican plan is moving through the legislature, started that process this week. Does it seem as though there is going to be negotiation on this between the governor's office and the legislature? Or or do you think the Republicans are just going to go with their plan and, and see what voters think of it? I think similar to to this election issue, at, at some point there will be a discussion between the governor's office and legislative Democrats and Republicans about what the right balance is for uh, Prop 123 one, renewal. And so I do think that there will be discussions between them and you'll see some compromise likely on both sides to, to, to actually get something to the ballot that probably is just a one-question issue rather than a two-question issue because as anyone who does campaigns would know, Asking the voters to to vote on two separate issues related is always harder than just doing one. Yeah. Well, and and Paul, we should point out that, you know, the legislature doesn't need the governor on this one, right? They can approve something, send it to the ballot without the governor's signature or veto. But what a lot of Democrats are saying is, you know, when Prop 123 initially passed, it barely passed and needed everybody supporting it. So, like, given that, does that sort of inform the discussion that, like, if— Republicans in the legislature, for example, want the governor to be out there campaigning for it. Maybe they need to give her a little bit of what she wants. Absolutely. I mean, going all the way back to the A for Arizona effort years ago and others, Prop 208, when you don't have the governor in favor of your education initiative, it's very challenging to pass it. It's not impossible, but it's very challenging. You want everybody on the same page, Um, especially as we're facing a state budget shortfall here. I think it's important to note with Republicans also wanting to keep their ESA vouchers in place that they need to find ways to increase education funding. The majority of the electorate still think that Um, Schools are underfunded and teachers are underpaid. But there's another part of this and that's the staff associated with it as well. The the other people that make a school work, there is a large group of individuals that are critical and essential to making a school function. And just limiting it just to teachers leaves those folks in in a different spot that can be very challenging. I mean every school district that I've spoken to is challenged to find bus drivers, to find support staff, to find that special ed teachers. Those are all things that really need to be addressed as well. So bringing people together to find some sort of negotiation, I think it would be wise on both parts um, because we really still do need more money in education in the state. Mike, is this one of those issues where they could maybe meet in the middle? They're about 2 percent off apart in terms of how much they want to take out. Like, could they meet in the middle and 
you know, dole out money to maybe a few of the extra groups of people like Paul is saying and maybe not all, something like that? Oh, definitely. Again, I, I think the the key is getting them in a room and having that discussion about how we want to make this work and how we're going to support it. And again, bringing business community into the discussion because, again, they're going to be asked to fund a campaign. So, I, again, I, th- I think that having everybody in the room to have that discussion is is the would be a good first step. Maybe those kinds of discussions could take place, I don't know, at the, a golf tournament, for example. There's a big one happening in Phoenix. <laughs> now that the sun is out, it's uh, resuming. And there will be, according to the Arizona Commerce Authority, uh, these groups of CEOs, business executives coming through. These were the subject of uh, Auditor General's uh, reports and the governor and the or the attorney general saying that these are unconstitutional, you can't do it. So now the Commerce Authority is saying we're going to ma- mostly have a private group or groups pick up the tab, just a little bit of public money. The attorney general says that's okay. Is this, how, how does this, like optically, how does this seem, do you think, Mike? Well, again, I think the, the, the Commerce Authority has done a great job in helping bring businesses, TSMC and others, to, to Arizona, creating jobs, driving the economy, uh, increasing wages, doing all the things that the Commerce Authority was created to do. And so, again, I think that that having this type of thing using private money is probably a, a good compromise um, to continue doing what the Commerce Authority needs to do. Paul, is it potentially troubling depending on where the money comes from? Well, I mean, certainly always where, you know, where does the money come from is, is a big question. It also has to do with sports. Anytime we're talking about sports tickets, sports events, sports things, you know, um, bringing somebody here to tour uh, something, I don't think we'd bat an eye at that or uh, bringing them to town to, to learn more about our education system or something. I don't think anybody has a challenge with that. It's the, you know, bringing people when, while they're here and exposing them to Arizona. I mean, spring training is a great example. Part of the reason why we've had such great uh, economic success and such great uh, movement, particularly from the Midwest, is because people came out here for spring training, realized what a great place it was, and decided to move here. It's the same general principle from a golf tournament to the Super Bowl to anything else. You bring the folks here, you introduce them, you get them to understand um, where we are as a state, and it brings people back. It is a good investment. It's just a challenging investment because it's a, there's a sport involved and the average person says, well, I sure would love to get free <laughs> tickets to go to, a, to, to an event like this. Yeah. Well, so, Paul, do you think this might be the template for these kinds of things going forward? Like, could we see this sort of structure at the men's Final Four, the NCAA tournament, for example, coming to Glendale this spring? Yeah, I, I think this is a good template to, to move forward with that. We have to recognize that these events are not only great for the economy when it comes to bringing people to town, but they're great economically in attracting businesses. And so finding that nexus in a way that's reasonable, I think, is a, is a good spot, and this can be a good template for that. All right. So just a, a minute or so left. There's another big sporting event happening this weekend. Not here. I mean, but just, you know, a little bit up the road. You guys going to Vegas? No. You guys are both shaking your head. All right. Not, not a big fan of Vegas. Okay. So who, who do you got in the game, Mike? Uh, I'm going with the 49ers. 49ers, okay. Paul, who do you have? Can't can out, count out Patrick Mahomes and true love between Travis Kelsey and Taylor Swift. How can't many ta- how many Taylor Swift songs do you know all the lyrics to, Paul? <laughs> Very few. Okay. And what what are we putting the over under on number of times Taylor Swift is shown on the broadcast? <laughs> Twelve. Twelve. Yeah. Okay. All right. We well, guys are see we have some bipartisan agreement and, here. And, like and I'm 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 going over. You're going. You're taking the over. Okay. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay. Very good. All right. That is Paul Benz, Mike Hayner. Thanks, guys, so much for coming in. I really appreciate the conversation. Thank you.
Good morning. It's the show on KJZZ 91.5. I'm Mark Brody. Coming up, there have been countless Frankenstein reimaginations since Mary Shelley's novel was published in 1818. A screenwriter and horror novelist explains why filmmakers continue to gravitate toward the 200-year-old story. But first, when the trailer for the video game Grand Theft Auto 6 was released late last year, it reached more than 100 million views in just a couple of days. That's according to the games and entertainment site IGN. That was higher than the number of views for the fifth version of the game. It also surpassed the number of views for trailers of other popular video games. And Guinness World Records posted on X, formerly known as Twitter, that the GTA 6 trailer broke the record for the most views on YouTube in 24 hours. That got us thinking about the popularity of violent video games like this and why so many people are drawn to them. To find out, we reached out to Brad Bushman, a professor of communication at The Ohio State University, where he studies human aggression and violence. He joins me to talk about this. And Brad, why are people so attracted to violent video games? Yeah, that's a a really good question. And researchers have been studying it for a very long time. I think violent video games allow players to engage in illegal violent behaviors in the virtual world that they would never engage in in the real world. And not only do they not get punished or go to jail for their actions, they actually get rewarded. So for example, uh, they they might hear praise like nice shot after they kill an enemy or uh, they get points for killing enemies and they get to advance to the next level of the game. And we know that Reward is a very powerful motivator of human behavior. Right. Well, so are these generally players who would not do these things in in real life? Like, are they people who are not generally inclined to violence? Well, I think violent video games are tremendously popular. So many people play them, but many people don't assault, rape, rob, murder people in the real world. So violent games give people a chance for those who are interested to do to engage in those actions. Another possible reason that people might play violent games is they think they're healthy and therapeutic. And this belief is based on catharsis theory, which proposes that violent games allow people to purge or cleanse their angry feelings and aggressive impulses into harmless channels. But if catharsis theory is true, then playing violent video games should decrease anger and aggression. But hundreds of studies have shown exactly the opposite. Playing violent video games increase anger and aggression. And our own research shows that people who are angry and believe in catharsis, in one study we manipulated them to believe in catharsis by having them read news stories, In another study, we measured their belief in catharsis. In both studies, we found that people who believed in catharsis, when they were angry, they wanted to play violent video games, perhaps because they think that doing so is therapeutic, even though it's not. Well, that seems to be the same kind of thinking in terms of like when you're really frustrated with something, going to a rage room where you can take a baseball bat to a printer or something like that or go boxing or something like that. It, it sounds elegant in theory, but there's not a shred of scientific evidence to support catharsis theory. Well, so is the opposite true then? And you kind of alluded to this, that somebody maybe is feeling frustrated or feeling angry and they play a violent video game. And it, does it just kind of add on to their anger? 
For sure. It's like um, adding fuel to the fire. I mean, that seems like it would be problematic in at least some cases. It, it definitely is uh, problematic. You know, maybe you've heard the old joke, how do you get to Carnegie Hall? Practice, practice, practice. 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 Right. How do you become an angry, aggressive person? The answer is the same. Practice, practice, practice. And by playing violent video games, that's exactly what people are doing. They're practicing how to behave more aggressively by engaging in uh, violent behaviors within the game. Is the same also true for non-video games? Like if you are a fan of watching violent TV shows or watching other violence on screens and the movies, that kind of thing, or is it different if you're actually the one doing it? It, uh, playing a violent video game is different than watching a violent TV program or film. And, and that's an important distinction to make because throughout history, violent entertainment has been tremendously popular. Humans probably have been entertaining themselves with violent spectacles since the beginning of time, such as going to gladiator games or attending public executions. Hmm. But today, people can entertain themselves with these violent spectacles anytime, anywhere, 24-7. They don't have to go to the Coliseum to watch the gladiator games. They don't have to go to the village square to watch a public execution. They can consume it on screens, large and small, including handheld devices that they carry around with them everywhere they go. And there are at least three differences between viewing violence and playing a violent video game. One is that violent gameplay is active, whereas watching TV program or movies passive. Second, uh, players of violent video games are more likely to identify with the violent character. If the game is a first-person shooter, players have the same visual perspective as a killer. And if the game's a third-person game, they control the actions of the violent character. In both cases, they're connected to the violent character. And research uh, shows that people are more likely to behave aggressively themselves when they identify with violent characters. And third... Violent video games directly reward violent behavior, such as by awarding points or allowing players to advance in the game. And, um, you know, if you watch a violent movie or TV program, people don't give you a quarter every time somebody (laughs) gets killed, right? Um, But in in a video game, you accumulate these points and praise uh, for behaving in an aggressive way. So I think it is research clearly shows that watching violent TV programs, watching violent movies also increases aggression, but violent video games are different in important ways from TV programs and movies. Yeah. Are you finding that video games are more violent now? Like, is there just more violence in video games and maybe more graphic violence in video games now than there has been in the past? Yeah, for sure. Um, they're becoming more and more realistic over time. So, for example, a video game developer might hire a doctor and say, oh, what would happen if I shot somebody in the arm? Would the blood, like, spurt out or would it pour out? Or So they're becoming very, very realistic. The guns are the same guns that you find in the real world. Um, the characters look more like lifelike, you know, 
get an idea, just play a violent video game from the 1980s or something. It's yeah. uh, They've changed a lot. All right. That is Brad Bushman, professor of communication at The Ohio State University. Brad, thanks so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure. Good morning. It's the show on KJZZ 91.5. I'm Mark Brody. This week, hundreds of young dancers are gathering in Phoenix for the American Idol of Ballet, the Youth America Grand Prix. At stake are scholarships to ballet schools and spots in some of the best companies. But our next guest says ballet is competitive enough as it is. Alice Robb is author of the book Don't Think, Dear, on Loving and Leaving Ballet. She left ballet at 15 after attending the prestigious School of American Ballet in New York. My co-host Lauren Gilger spoke with her more about her experience in ballet, beginning with what she loved about it. I fell in love with ballet when I was a child. I started in, you know, kind of baby ballet classes when I was three years old. And I became a huge part of my life until I quit at the age of 15. There was so much that I loved about it. I loved performing. I mean, some of my happiest memories are from the Nutcracker and just you know, moving to the music. And I loved the kind of the discipline of it and the friendships and the intensity. I mean, those were there, there are dark sides to some of those things, Mm -hmm. but they were also very compelling. So you were at the School of American Ballet in New York um, from age nine Mm -hmm. till 12, right? Tell us a little bit about about getting there. Was that a really big achievement already at such a young age to just be in that academy? I mean, it felt like one. I was very aware of SAB because I was living in New York and I knew someone who was there and I knew that she'd been in the Nutcracker and I'd been to the Nutcracker at Lincoln Center and like seen the kids on stage. So I actually auditioned three times Hmm. before I finally got in. I was maybe more determined than talented, but I was just so excited when it eventually paid off. It felt like exactly where I wanted to be and you know, they really made a big deal of the fact that all of the professional dancers in New York City Ballet had gone to SAB. So it felt like I was on this amazing track that I would just climb up the ranks from year to year and then and then I'd be a professional ballet dancer. Yeah, yeah. So we'll talk more about what happened after that in a moment. But mm-hmm. tell us first, so there there is like a world of dance, of ballet, that is like explicitly competitive, in which you're dancing in competitions, mm-hmm. right? But this is not what you were doing. Yeah. Talk about the sort of innate competitiveness of it, though, regardless of that. We weren't encouraged to compete in places like YAG. But, you know, every day sort of felt like a competition because we could see each other. We were in class with the same people every day. We could see who was progressing, who was getting attention from the teachers, which usually took the form of corrections. But we saw those as, you know, any attention was positive um, and who was getting the best parts in the ballets when there were children's parts. So things like Nutcracker and Mm -hmm. a handful of other ballets. And yeah, I mean, I think it must be so much harder today when kids have social media and they're not comparing themselves just to the other people in their class, but to everyone around the world and also the best possible versions of them. Mm -hmm. Um, So I wasn't dealing with that 15 years ago, but it was still very intense. Yeah, very competitive. There's also a lot of pressure, it sounds like, from parents, from families on young people in ballet who you've spoken with and on you as well, right? Well, I think that whether it's explicit or implicit, I think kids are so aware of the sacrifices that 
their parents are making, whether, you know, to take them to class, come to their shows, whatever support they're giving. And then from teachers as well. I think um, it's hard to say how much of a factor this was in my own short ballet career, but I really noticed it as a, as a journalist in my 30s. I've done some interviews with teenagers who have quit recently. And one thing that really stood out to me and that I found kind of devastating was that so many of them talked about the guilt they felt, not just their own disappointment, Mm -hmm. but the guilt of letting down their parents and their teachers. And even if I'm not talking like, you know, crazy stage moms, dance moms, but I think just, um, just kind of regular parents who are maybe making financial sacrifices or maybe something's being taken away from their siblings. Like I think kids are so aware of that. Yeah. Yeah. Talk about the physical toll that ballet put on you. Like, it sounds like, like in many competitive sports, you know, of other kinds, like you would kind of go through the pain, you dance through the pain. Yeah, I mean, ballet is such an unnatural thing to do. People always think about, oh, okay, dancers have to be thin. Sure. But that's like the tip of the iceberg. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's also the turnout from the hips, um, it's kind of rotation in your hips, the arches of the feet, flexibility of the joints. They're just so many ways that you can not have the ideal body and and then have to compensate. Another thing about ballet is you start when you're so young and you kind of fall in love with it so young and you don't really know how your body is going to develop. So things could be chugging along fine and then you go on point at 10 or 11 or 12 when you're deemed strong enough and then you could find that actually your feet, the way your feet are built makes point even more painful than it does for other people. Um, And just the nature of point is that you're putting the entire weight of your body on the tip of your toes. So Mm -hmm. it's, you know, it's never going to feel amazing. Um, (laughs) You learn to cope with it, but yeah. Yeah. But there are real questions there of, of body image, especially for young Mm -hmm. girls and of, of like what it means to be a girl, like this idea of traditional femininity, right? Yeah, I mean, this was something that I thought about a lot while I was working on my book. It was one of the kind of central questions of it was why, you know, I was 28, 29 when I started working on it. I hadn't danced in over a decade. I was fully immersed in my career as a writer, but I still felt like ballet had this hold on me. And I would still sort of look up on social media, the girls I had danced with, and I would still kind of, I could still get obsessive about it and kind of feel like I had failed for not becoming a dancer. And I realized as I was working on the book that part of that was because I think dancers are seen as these kind of paragons of femininity in our society where they're perfectly thin and beautiful and they might be in pain but you can never see it on their face they're always kind of smiling and looking pleasant and I mean of course in ballet women don't speak um in the classroom we also didn't speak so that all these kind of feminine stereotypically feminine traits are taken to an extreme in ballet and I think that really influenced my idea of like what an ideal woman was supposed to be Hmm. so I mean I wonder like if you're looking at the world of ballet today as you do from this outside point of view now as a journalist Mm -hmm. you mentioned social media before like how different do you Mm -hmm. think the world is now are there even like additional challenges you think these young people are facing in that world that you didn't even have to deal with, even though it was really hard for you? Yeah, I mean, I do think certain standards have gotten a little bit softer. I think the leaders are becoming more aware of things like eating disorders and the need to take time off when dancers are injured, although they still, of course, put lots of pressure on themselves to hide injuries. Mm. But yeah, I mean, I, I see accounts of, you know, like parent managed accounts of 10, 11, 12 year old dancers. So I think the competition is just getting, it's starting younger and younger. 
And I, I think it would be really hard to kind of maintain a sense of fun in that environment, or it could be. Yeah. All right, we'll leave it there. That is Alice Robb, author of the book, Don't Think, Dear, on Loving and Leaving Ballet. Alice, thank you for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. The new film, Lisa Frankenstein, opens today. It's the story of a teenager who has a crush on a corpse. Last year's movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, is also generating a lot of buzz right now, including winning the Golden Globe for Best Motion Picture for Musical or Comedy and Stone for Best Actress in a Musical or Comedy. These are just two of the most recent reimaginations of the classic novel Frankenstein by Mary Shelley, but there have been a number of them over the years. To find out why and why the story has been so popular over the more than two centuries since it's been written, I'm joined by Brian McCauley, a clinical assistant professor of screenwriting at ASU Sidney Poitier New American Film School. He's also a WGA screenwriter and a published horror novelist. So, Brian, what is the appeal of Frankenstein broadly, and what do you find so appealing about it? Yeah, I think what's great about Frankenstein is that it kind of covers every possible theme imaginable from from creativity and science to nature and ambition and, and prejudice, loneliness, family, love. Like it's all baked into this concept and this story that for me I just found an immediate connection to when I was younger. I think especially the the sort of search for meaning in life is the is the core theme of it. You know, it's ultimately about a creation that was rejected by its its parent mm-hmm. and is therefore alone in the world trying to find its way. And I think for most people, that's pretty relatable. We all kind of feel like we're trying to find our way in this world. And I think that's one of the reasons that it kind of endures through the ages. Do you see the story? Do you interpret the story differently, like at different stages of your life? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think that and and I, I, I channeled it into my first novel, Curse of the Reaper, was about an actor who played a monster in horror movies. And then later in life, that character takes on a life of its own and starts to mess with his mind and his life. So mm. I've, I've directly channeled that sort of archetype into a story before. But every time I come back to Frankenstein, I see something different or I relate to something different in the story. I just finished a reread of it where, yeah, I was I become less and less interested in Victor Frankenstein, frankly. I find him pretty uh, intolerable the huh. older I get. Um, and I've always, but I've always been more drawn to the creature. And when it gets to that turn in the story of now it's my turn to tell you what my life has been since you rejected me, there's there's that immediate emotional connection, I think. Why do you think that is? Why do you think that you've sort of moved away from the story of the creator and maybe relate more to the story of the creation? I think especially as a as a growing up as an aspiring artist, there is something some point of connection to aspiring to like do and be something great. Um, But I think the older that I've gotten and the more experience that I've had, the more that that kind of ambition takes a backseat to just kind of wanting to feel connected to humanity. And that's now my goal in creation is to, to connect with other people. And that's kind of the creature's goal is to find some sense of acceptance in the world. It's so interesting when you talk about finding a sense of, of connection, finding a sense of like connecting to other people, that you find all that through a story about something that is not human. Yes. I mean, that for me, I've, I've always been a huge fan of the horror genre and, and studied it and have written in it. Um, and I think because the horror genre really does focus on all of the aspects of society that we try to push away and repress and keep in the dark that need to have a, a spotlight put on them. And I think that's what 
these stories can do for people is to make them make them feel more seen and heard through stories about you know monsters and and creatures that have been rejected by society do you think in some ways it's easier to talk about those things that are difficult as you say to talk about when you're doing it through a monster or some other non-human being as opposed to you know two people talking about it yeah absolutely i think i think that's the big benefit of kind of having a layer of disconnect from it. So you're not directly tackling the subject, but you're kind of creating, you know, a myth, an allegory. This is how storytelling has been for ages, is to create these allegories that allow us to process what it means to be human. Um, In one of my classes, we screened the Jordan Peele film Get Out Mm -hmm. recently, and a lot of the students really responded to, like, I had no idea you could make a film about racism, but make it a fun, funny, scary horror movie. And that, I think, is why it's so successful, is that it's Horror can kind of tackle these big weighty subjects, but through a genre that is much more accessible. Yeah, that is interesting. Well, so you mentioned that, you know, people continue to relate to the Frankenstein story and there continue to be sort of reimagined versions of it, new movies coming out, new ways of thinking about it. Is there something about now that leads you to think this is a particularly good time for more of these? Yeah, you know, I think that one of the biggest things I'm noting in that in that trend um, what I'm noticing, especially with Poor Things um, and the upcoming Lisa Frankenstein, is that they're centering a woman's experience in this narrative, um, whereas the book is much more focused on Victor and the creature as male figures. Um, but Poor Things uses that paradigm uh, of this creation in search of autonomy and makes it very specifically about a woman's experience with her body in the world and men telling her that she's not allowed to own her body and use it however she wants so it's really, uh, I think, at a time when we're seeing things like the overturn of Roe v. Wade and uh, women being stripped of rights, that it makes a lot of sense to use this paradigm to show a woman who is in search of and embracing that autonomy. And do you consider that sort of the same thing we were just talking about in terms of maybe it's sometimes easier to talk about a difficult issue like that through fiction or through, you know, sort of a scary story as opposed to, you know, hearing about it on the news or seeing a documentary about it or something like that? Yeah. And that's something, you know, when I teach screenwriting, the first lesson every day is always going to be about empathy, that stories allow us an entryway to feel and experience a life that is not our own so that when we go out into the world, we can have more compassion and more empathy. So my hope would be that, you know, especially for a movie like Poor Things, if there are men who do not understand or support women's rights, they might get to get to know Bella Baxter, that character, and live through her experience and therefore come out much more compassionate and empathic for that character and, and people like her. Do you find that that works, that people see movies like this, see, see stories like this and come away with more empathy? Yeah, the, I, absolutely. I've seen it myself and there have been actual like neurological studies huh. of the way – and it it only really works if it's a if it's a certain kind of uh, a well structured narrative, which is why it's important to learn dramatic storytelling and the ways in which stories can engage us in our empathy. It's interesting because I think for a lot of folks they think about like a horror movie or like a creature movie, and they don't necessarily think of great storytelling. They don't think of like morality and messaging. They think of like you know people with hockey masks hiding out in a garage like with a chainsaw and think, well, like anybody can write this. It's not hard. Like you just have to scare a lot of people and have a lot of blood and guts. But what you're saying is that's that's not really so for for the good ones. Yeah, I think I think that it you know because the horror genre deals with fear, it can be a really good lens from a historical perspective to see 
what were people really afraid of in different eras? All you have to do is look at the horror movies that were successful and what fear were they were they tapping into? Was it a fear of religion? Was it a fear of you know outside ideologies like communism became invasion of the body snatchers you can, and there's always going to be an undercurrent of a fear of feminine power that's you know from carry up through poor things and everything in between there's always that idea of trying to control women and being afraid of the power they have interesting all right brian thanks a lot for the conversation i appreciate it thanks for having me Brian McCauley is a clinical assistant professor of screenwriting at ASU Sydney Poitier New American Film School. He's also a WGA screenwriter and a published horror novelist. And that'll do it for this Friday edition of the show. Thank you, as always, so much for listening. If you want to keep up with the show, follow us on Instagram at KJZZ The Show. The show was produced by Sativa Peterson, Nick Sanchez, Amber Victoria Singer, Nate Boyle, Athena Ankra, and Larissa May, as well as Bruce Drummond. Sky Shout is our digital editor. Chad Snow is our news director. The show was created by John Hoban. Our executive producer is Amy Silverman. I am Mark Brody in Phoenix. Again, thank you for listening. Have a great weekend. Have a terrific rest of your day today. Hope to have you right back here on Monday.